seated. One of the podcasts that I listen to regularly is called The Political Gab Fest. And it's a 45-minute discussion where uh, three insightful people evaluate current events from their basically center-left position, but they're very even-handed in, in the discussion. And occasionally, this group of three uh, journalists record their discussion, their conversation, in front of a live studio audience. And for several years, one of the men on the panel, his name is David Plotz, he has been trying to get the audience to sing together. He picks some song that he thinks everyone will know, and he tries to get them to sing. And every time he tries to get the crowd to sing, he complains that we don't sing very much in public anymore, that there's no room in our culture for public singing. Mike Cosper wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition a few years ago. It's called Why We Sing. And uh, he would agree with David Plotz. He said, uh, there was a time when a gathering, a public gathering to sing was fairly commonplace, when community, a community would gather and sing when there was a body of shared, well-known songs. But today, he says, such outings are rare. It's a vestige of long-gone days. It's a dying art, public singing is, he says in America. Uh, it's interesting, he wrote this article after attending a live taping of A Prairie Home Companion with Garrison Keillor, and he was always trying to get his audience to sing. So after one of the uh, live recordings of the political gabfest that I heard where the public singing in that setting was particularly terrible, uh, I emailed David Plotz, and I said to him, you know, uh, there are millions of people around the world who gather on a regular basis with other people to sing. It happens every Sunday morning at churches. And then actually I recommended to him a congregation near his home in Washington, D.C., where he could go and hear some good public singing. I don't know if he went. He wrote me a note and thanked me for the recommendation. I don't know if he ever went. Uh, when Christians gather together, we sing. That's one of the things that we do. I wonder how much you have thought about why we sing or how we sing. Um, ha have you ever thought about how, what would make our singing better? We sing a lot, but we don't uh, talk a lot about the roots and fruits of our singing. Singing is an act of worship. It involves your whole person. It involves your mind as you think about the lyrics. It involves your body as you uh, stretch it and, 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 and uh, move it in order to sing. It involves your emotions. Singing and music has a particular way to connect with your emotions. It's a, it's a whole body act of worship. Singing is also uh, an act of unity. We sing together. At the same time, we sing the same words in the same rhythm, and even if, when we're singing particularly well, we breathe together when we sing, before we start, right? I would like you to take your Bibles and turn me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Actually, today, I'm going to post all these verses. I'm going to show them to you because... I have a lot of verses that I want to show you to show to you, and it'll just be quicker if it's behind me on the screen. So if you want to look, you can look there, but uh, your Bible open would be wonderful too. Ephesians 5:19. One of the reasons that we sing together is because Christ told us to. 
In fact, that's the most important reason why we sing together. Christ commanded us to. Look at this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, and here's what he says. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, you notice the, the object of the singing, or who, the indirect object, I suppose, who we are singing for, it says we're singing to one another. That's interesting because I remember during the worship wars when we were fighting about what sort of songs that we would sing in our corporate gatherings, one of the uh, uh, contentions that those who wanted more contemporary music were arguing about is, is they said that so much of the hymnody, the old hymnody that we sing, is not uh, to God, but about God. They said, we want to sing more contemporary songs that are to God, not these old songs that are merely about God. Do you remember that argument that was a piece of the puzzle? It's interesting, isn't it? Paul's concern is he wants you to sing to one another. Now, uh, that's why when we gather together, we don't dim the lights when we sing. Because we want to be able to see other people Singing, so you can see other worshipers. And, and the preferred sound of worship in our congregation is the sound of the people singing. We want just enough volume from those on the platform that we can follow them, but not so much that it drowns out the singing of other people. I have had occasions where uh, I have attended worship services where the opposite uh, was the goal. So we, we want you to have an experience with God, so we're going to turn all the lights down and we're going to make the music really loud so you can hear yourself and think only about yourself. Oh, maybe that's the problem. Sing to one another psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Worship God in such a way that others can see you and can hear you. Now, I make those observations from the text and, and they set some of our priorities in our own church, but this passage points us in even a more important direction. Paul is writing about singing as a topic that touches on the role and the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you, you saw that in verse 19. It says, sing songs from the Spirit. Your translation might say, sing spiritual songs. But even more importantly, if we go back just one verse in verse 18, Ephesians 5:18, it says, "Instead, be filled with the Spirit." Well, what's one of the signs that you are filled with the Spirit? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? In part, it means that we are singing people. One of the signs of the power and the presence of the Spirit of God among God's people is that when we gather together, we sing. So this morning what I want to do is I want to share with you from the Bible why you need the Holy Spirit to sing. Or uh, perhaps more fully, I want to talk about why you need the Holy Spirit to sing in a way that will encourage and help and strengthen those around you on Sunday mornings. Uh, you may have never thought about this, but uh, do you realize that your participation, your glad participation in corporate worship on Sunday mornings is one of the most frequent ways that you serve other people? Is there anything that you do in the church or ministry that you fill that you do more regularly and more publicly than singing with God's people when we gather together? And I want to argue that you need the Holy Spirit in order to sing well. 
Now we come to this topic this morning because we're in part five in a series of moving through Grace's doctrinal statement. We're spending the summer doing this systematic teaching and we're moving through a summary of what we believe that the Bible uh, teaches. And each week as we've come through these sections, I've tried to answer four questions. What does the statement mean? Uh, is it, uh, can you show it to me from the Bible? Uh, is it believable? And uh, the last question is, how does it apply, those four questions? Now, this week I was talking about this sermon with uh, Scott and Josh, and it occurred to me that they, these sermons to me a little bit feel like taking a magnifying glass out into the sunshine. Do you remember doing that? You, you, you take the magnifying glass... Um, out, and and it, it takes the light of the sun and it concentrates it to a pinpoint spot. If you are cruel and sadistic, you use it. Some of you know where I'm going because you're cruel and sadistic, right? You use it to burn bugs, right? Let's find some ants and let's give them a foretaste of horrible eternal punishment, right? Okay, so some of you do. Now, if you are not a sadist, maybe you use your magnifying glass and the sunshine to burn leaves or sticks just to watch and see what happens. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to take our doctrinal statements and, and the scripture themselves, what they say about the Holy Spirit, and we're going to narrow it down to its focus on singing. Uh, last week, we talked about the Son of God, and we narrowed the focus down to shame. And before that, it was God the Father, and we narrowed the focus down to worry. I think this approach is fine. I'm, con I'm content with it. The danger of it is, though, is that you might think, you might be tempted to believe that God himself is as small as a pinpoint of light. But God is the sun at the center of the universe. God holds all things together. He provides all of the light and warmth that is necessary for every living creature on the planet to survive. You can concentrate his work on small things like worry and shame and singing, but God is much, much bigger than all of those things. So let's, let's narrow just for a little bit this morning. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and singing. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to read the doctrinal statement. Then I want to give you four reasons why you need the Holy Spirit to sing. Now, if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Christ. A, we're both glad that, really glad that you're here. And maybe B, secondly, as I'm talking, maybe you will begin to understand a little of the things that we believe as followers of Jesus that make us different. Things that the Bible tells us makes us unusual in this world. So let's read the doctrinal statement here about the Holy Spirit. And uh, you can take this, I don't know if this is orange or salmon. I'm not sure if it's salmon or not. We're going to read this sheet of paper, uh, the doctrinal statement. It's in italics. And uh, read this paragraph with me, all right? We believe in the Holy Spirit who executes the will of the Father and the Son within creation. His ministry glorifies Jesus Christ and implements Christ's work of redemption. He regenerates all believers, securing them in Christ forever, and empowers them for godly living and service. The work of the Spirit in the church is evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit and the building up of the body of Christ into Christ-likeness. The ministry of the Spirit does not need miraculous verification. His work does not guarantee abundant wealth or a life without difficulty. The Spirit controls, leads, gifts, and transforms believers. You need the Holy Spirit to help you sing. Here are four reasons why. Number one, the Spirit gives you life so that you can sing. The Spirit gives you life 
so that you can sing. Now, um, I want you to, well, first of all, the doctrinal statement touches on this in several different ways, giving us life. Most centrally, it says that the Spirit regenerates. That is, He gives life again. He makes alive. It describes the how of regeneration when it says that the Spirit implements Christ's work of redemption. And he he executes the will of the Father and the Son. The Spirit gives life. If you have your Bibles, again, why don't you turn to John chapter 3, or you can look behind me in just a minute as soon as I get to John 3 and pick up the remote and hit the button. There it is. John chapter 3. I want to listen into a conversation that you maybe have listened into before. It's a conversation between a well-educated, prominent religious man named Nicodemus and Jesus. It's interesting as we start John chapter 3, D.A. Carson in these first couple verses detects a slight hint of of arrogance on Nicodemus' part. Maybe you can hear it. Uh, Look what it says. Uh, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Impressive resume. He came to Jesus one night at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. That's where Carson detects it. We know. We know that you are a, that plural we. We we know. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus is pretty sure about what he knows. What's interesting about the rest of the passage is that it's going to focus on what he don't know. All right, Uh, verse 3, look what it says. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. This is so interesting. Uh, In our culture 20 years ago, uh, it was uh, uh, the height of intellectual integrity not to be certain about anything. You were supposed to be uncertain about things. You were supposed to say things like, well, it seems to me, and this is just my opinion, and this is a great sign of humility not to be certain. Now things have changed a little bit so that the only thing you're supposed to be certain about is intolerance. You certainly will not intolerate intolerance. Now notice the statement that Jesus makes. He is very certain, and he's rather intolerant. Very truly, I tell you, no one, No one, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And he's talking about the kingdom of God. The Bible is filled with promises about this coming kingdom, this kingdom that is to come, this age of perfect justice, this age of perfect righteousness, light and life, joy and gladness. Do you ever get discouraged reading the newspaper? Well, the kingdom of God is coming and every problem that the Sunday news identifies is going to be fixed by the Lord Jesus himself. Oh, we can't wait for that kingdom. But you can't see the kingdom unless you are born again. Jesus is putting his, problem, uh, uh, his finger on a problem that we all have. We want to be in this kingdom, but the problem is we can't enter it because we are all naturally, spiritually dead. That is, we are cut off from the source of life, from God himself. This separation was born in our choice to reject him, and and we have turned from his sovereign love, and this separation manifests itself on the planet in thousands of ways. One of the ways it manifests itself is in our ability, inability to sing. 
Now, by that, I don't mean that our vocal cords are cut off or our diaphragm isn't sufficient to support notes. I mean that naturally human beings, without the work of the Spirit, being uh, spiritually dead, do not have the ability to truly worship in song, to sing with any real effect. Why? Because they're spiritually dead. It's possible for a spiritually dead person to sing psalm hymns and songs from the Spirit and to sing them beautifully with perfect pitch and beautiful harmonies. There are people who are uh, spiritually dead who sing a lot better than I do. It's been done for thousands of years. It can be beautiful, but because it's dead, because the songs are sung by the spiritually dead, they are empty. They're like actors performing a play. I have not seen it, but one of the great romantic movies of our time is The Notebook, based on that book by Nicholas Sparks. There have been uh, uh, scores of young men trying to woo a young lady who have sacrificed themselves on date night watching The Notebook. Well, um, what I understand is that during the filming of that movie, the, uh, the main characters, Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling, filmed that movie and they hated each other when they were in the process of doing it. They loathed one another. They couldn't get along with each other in reality, but in front of the camera they were madly in love. This is how spiritually dead people sing. You may be physically alive... In fact, I'm fairly certain that everyone in this room is physically alive, but spiritually dead. Or I could be more specific, you are uh, spiritually dead and physically dying, because we're all physically dying. Jesus is is talking here about our spiritual condition. Uh, uh, We are spiritually dead. But Nicodemus, he can't get past the physical, so he asked this somewhat grotesque and comical question. Look what Nicodemus says says how can someone be born when they're old nicodemus asked surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born it's laughable it's graphic it's a little creepy at the same time right somehow this middle-aged man imagines that he that jesus is suggesting that he crawl back into his mother's womb and emerge again which would be painful so then jesus answered Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born. Here's the born again part. What does this mean? Born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. You must be born, he says, of water and of spirit. This is a phrase that has puzzled a lot of people for a long time. What does the and mean in this sentence? You must be born of water and the spirit. Some people believe that Jesus is referring there to physical birth, which is somewhat watery. The water breaks. So you must be born physically. And, and the text does say flesh gives birth to flesh. So that's a possibility that you must be physically born and spiritually born and enter into the kingdom of heaven. But that seems a little uh, obvious, doesn't it? Uh, You have to be born, you have to be alive in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Other people, though, actually are inclined to believe that this water and spirit birth is a reference to baptism. 
So there's a spiritual conversion born of the Spirit, and there is a necessary water ritual in order for you to see the kingdom of heaven. You have to be uh, converted by the Spirit, and you have to be baptized in order to, be, uh, to see the kingdom of heaven, in order to have spiritual light. Now, the problem with that view is that the Christian preeminence of baptism didn't come until later in the future, and here Jesus is, is rebuking Nicodemus for not understanding it. Nicodemus, you should understand this based on your understanding of the Old Testament. You know everything about the Old Testament. Nicodemus had large portions of it memorized, and Jesus is saying, how can you be a teacher of the Old Testament and not understand this? So Jesus is rebuking Nicodemus about something he should know that he already knows from his past, not something about what's going to happen in the future when baptism is going to become preeminent. Baptism isn't the subject that, that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about something that Nicodemus should be intimately aware of. And I think that the solution to this problem, water and the spirit, how do we understand it, is found in Ezekiel chapter 36. Let me show you a verse from Ezekiel chapter 36. In the, in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet is speaking to the people. He is condemning the nation of Israel for their rebellion against God. And then in verse 24, he starts talking about how God is going to rescue them, what he's going to do to this rebellious, hard-hearted people that are his own. Look what he says, Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle, oh, here it is, look at this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart, remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I will give you, that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. So he's talking about the restoration of the nation of Israel and how God is going to do it. And it is a work of God that involves a couple of different things. On the one hand, it involves a cleansing. The people need to be washed from their sins, from their old behavior. You need to be washed, you need to be cleansed, and you need to be given life by the Spirit. This is work that God is going to do, and I think that's the work that Jesus is speaking about here. You need to be born of water and the Spirit, two aspects of the same work of God, where he cleanses from past sins and gives life for the future. Washing and renewal. I think this is what the same thing that uh, Paul writes about in Titus 3. Look at Titus 3, 5. He saved us. God saved us. Not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. How did he do it? He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Does that sound like Jesus in John 3? Born of water and spirit. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. Born, water, he washed with water and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You need life. You need life, and the Spirit brings life. Look at John 6:63. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. 
Now, this role of the Holy Spirit in bringing life shouldn't surprise you at all. I remember Genesis chapter 1, God calls the world into existence, and the Spirit is there hovering over the waters. There, active at creation, he is. Then in Genesis chapter 2, God forms uh, uh, the the human uh, Adam from the, the mud, and what does he do? He breathes into him. Spirit. He breathes into him the breath of life, and Adam becomes a living spirit, the spirit giving life. In Luke chapter 1, when, when uh, the angel Gabriel is explaining to Mary how Jesus is going to be born, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will conceive. The Holy Spirit gives life. Now, how does the Holy Spirit give life? How does he do that? Well, the doctrinal statement says that he implements Christ's work of redemption. He implements Christ's work of redemption. We can go a little further. We can, we can answer this question in, in several different ways, actually, when we talk about how the Spirit gives life. One of the answers to the question is the Spirit gives life through the Word. The Spirit works through the Word. Look what 1 Peter 1 says. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. How does God give birth to people through the Word? Or James 1 says something similar, 118. He chose to give us birth, how? Through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So God uses his word to give birth, to give life to people. The spirit uses the word. It's one of the reasons we preach the word. But I think that even more central to this question of how the spirit gives life is this. The spirit gives life to us by uniting us with Jesus. The Spirit unites us to Jesus, and that's how we have life. Now follow me here. Uh, This is an interplay that I want to show you in the Gospel of John that's really quite helpful, and it speaks to how the Spirit implements the work of redemption. Look at these verses here, John 1. In him, speaking of the Word, the Lord Jesus, in him was life. So the life is in Jesus. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So where's life? Life is in Jesus. Life comes about through a vital connection to Jesus, and it's a connection that the Holy Spirit makes. Look at how Jesus spoke about this here in John 14. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, when he, the Father, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Holy Spirit connects you to Jesus' teaching. All right? John 15, 26 to 27. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. The Spirit is going to connect you to Jesus by speaking about Jesus. John 16:13 look what the text says but when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth he will not speak on his own he will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you all that belongs to the father is mine that is why i said the spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you So the Spirit is going to vitally connect you to Jesus. And that's how the Spirit gives life, by making this vital connection between Jesus and those who believe. Now I mention this because sometimes when we, and by we I mean me, sometimes 
when I talk about, when we talk about the gift of salvation from God, forgiveness and eternal life, sometimes we talk about it as if it's separate from who God is. That, that um, you know, you, you go to your grandmother's house at Christmas time and grandma says, here is a present. I went out and I bought it for you and I'm giving it to you. And you unwrap it and you look at it and you say, thanks grandma. And then you take the present and you go home. That's not how salvation works. Salvation is God himself is the gift. He unites us to himself. It would be as if your grandmother said, you came over to her house and your grandmother said, I love you so much that I want to share everything that I have with you. I want you to move into my house and be with me all the time and I'll bake your favorite cookies all the time and I'll, I'll make your favorite food and, and, and we'll hang out and, and, and we'll, we'll play all of your favorite I want you to be here with me. Grandma's the gift, Right? very different than how we think about the normal gifts that then we just take home. When it comes to forgiveness and eternal life, God himself is the gift, and the Spirit is the one who unites us to Jesus. The Spirit forms the bond, and he is the bond. Think about this here. This is why our doctrinal statement says that the Spirit secures us in Christ forever. The Spirit unites you to Jesus He bonds you to Jesus, and he is the bond to Jesus. And when he makes that bond, all of your sin becomes Jesus' sin, and he died for them on the cross and rose again, and all of Jesus' righteousness becomes yours. And he bonds you to to Jesus, and death will have no more effect over your spiritual death. Why? Because there's nothing left to kill you. What kills you spiritually? Your sin. What happens to your sin? Jesus died for it all and rose again. He secures you to Christ forever. He secures you uh, in, in holiness and righteousness to Jesus. Now, maybe an illustration will help here. So one of my favorite things to do, my great privileges as a pastor, is to perform wedding ceremonies. Um, so I lead couples, I get to do that. I lead couples in exchanging vows and rings. It's a great part of my job. My favorite part of the ceremony is the end. That's everybody's favorite part. Are we getting out of here? Right? It's the end, right? But my favorite part comes at the end where I stand up and say, by the authority invested in me and as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is with great joy. And that's, I, you stretch those lines out. You really got, and smile big. It is with great joy. You have to do that. With great joy that I pronounce you husband and wife. Uh, the church, this body, has authorized me. They have delegated the, me with the authority to pronounce those things. And the state recognizes your delegation of that authority to me. And I use this, decla- this authority to declare that two people are united. God does the uniting. Right? He does it. God unites a husband and wife together. But I, on the basis of your vows and your rings, I pronounce the union. I announce the union. The couple enters the room separately and they leave together because God has united them together and I get to pronounce that. The Holy Spirit takes you and Christ and on the profession of your faith, you become united to Christ. His death becomes yours. His resurrection becomes yours. You are united to him. 
Now, imagine as, as part of my pastoral responsibility, if it, was, it was, if it was my responsibility after pronouncing this bond of marriage, I also become responsible for maintaining this bond of marriage. In that case, you know what? I'm moving in with you. Okay? So in order to help you along the way, I'm going to be there to help you with every disagreement. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to coach you up close, personally. I'm here to seal the deal. I'm here to secure the bond. I'm moving in. If I'm moving in, you better get more popcorn because I like popcorn. And some of you are already thinking to yourself, if you're moving in, I'm moving out. <laughs> right? But how different it is with the Holy Spirit. He unites us to Christ and he reminds you always through the word of all that Christ is and all that Christ has done. He knows the mind of Christ and he transforms you so that you become more and more like him. Michael Reese describes it in a, in a slightly different way. He says, God the Father loves God the Son. And God the Father wants you to love God the Son the same way he loves God the Son. So he sends you the Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit will open your eyes so that you see in the Son all of the beauty and the wonder that the Father sees in the Son so that you love the Son like the Father loves the Son. And the Holy Spirit helps you to do that. I think this is what Paul is hinting at at Romans 5.5. 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. How? How does God's love get poured out into our hearts? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Think with me for a minute about how you drop off your baby in the nursery. Some of you, you walk into the nursery and you drop off the kid and you run and you sing and dance for joy, right? Woohoo! Okay? That's probably not how you did it the first time. First time you took this baby and, and you walked into that room and you saw those volunteers and you thought to yourself, are they going to love my baby like I love my baby? And the answer, of course, to that question is No. They're not the parents. But you want them to, right? You want them to love your baby like you love your baby. You, you, want, them to, you want them to know all about her endearing characteristics and all about the funny faces that she makes and, and all the great sounds that he makes. And, and, and you want, you're entrusting your baby into their hands. And I, I, I want you to love my baby like I love my baby. God the Father has a son and he loves his son. And he wants you to love his son like he loves his son. And he has given us the Holy Spirit to open our eyes so that we will love the son like he loves the son. And now we see the roots of our singing to one another. It, those roots are deep, they're real, they're true, they're heart change. It's music that comes not from a heart of stone, but music that comes from a new spirit-formed heart of flesh. This is a requirement of you to sing, to really sing. Not merely going through the motions, but to really sing. I have heard trained choirs uh, sing Amazing Grace beautifully. I have heard them sing it with greater excellence than we will ever be able to as a congregation with perfect pitch and perfect intonation, but it still falls short. Why? Because to really sing of God's grace, you have to experience God's grace deeply, wholly, truly. And this is the sort of singing that the Holy Spirit produces in us because the Holy Spirit gives us life. 
Now, we spent almost all of our time on the first reason you need the Spirit to sing. We're going to keep going. We're going to pick up the pace. All right, number two, reason number two. The Spirit points you to the object of your singing. The Spirit points you to the object of your singing. This morning, we sang almost every song that we know about the Holy Spirit. There are more of them. There are dozens more, I'm sure, but not as many as worship leaders would like. If I want to really ruin Ryan's life, I will say to him, we're going to preach, I'm going to talk about the Holy Spirit for the next 12 weeks, and I want you to come up with 60 songs about the Holy Spirit. He would not enjoy that. Uh, But there are dozens and dozens and dozens of songs that we sing about God the Son. Why is that? Because the Spirit wants it that way. Look again at John 16, 13, and 14. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. The Spirit doesn't act to glorify himself. He glorifies the Son. And so when we sing about Jesus, the Spirit smiles. J.I. Packer uses the illustration of floodlights. On a well-lit building at night, you you see and admire the building. You see its shapes and its colors. I've never been there, but I understand that the Ark Encounter in in, uh, Kentucky, where they built the the Ark, is, is is just beautiful, in particular at night, because of the floodlights. Noah's floodlights. Okay, so uh, uh, the lights that are shining. Now, (laughs) that was, I'm so proud. Okay, so it's bad. It's not good if you look at a building and you see it and you walk away and think, those are the most amazing floodlights in the whole world. Something's wrong if you admire the floodlights. You're supposed to admire the building and not the floodlights. Well, the Holy Spirit is, is, the, flood, the, is the floodlight to the Lord Jesus to glorify him. He, as God the Spirit, he is worthy of worship, but his work is to glorify Jesus. And one of the pointers that our services are suffused with the Spirit is that we sing about the Son. All right, now let's move on to reason number three why you need the Holy Spirit. Reason number three why you need the Holy Spirit to sing. The Spirit enables you to sing in sorrow. The Spirit enables you to sing in sorrow. This is a topic we're going to talk about very briefly because of two lines in the doctrinal statement. Our doctrinal statement says two things. It denials, actually. The ministry of the Spirit does not need miraculous verification. His work does not guarantee abundant wealth or a life without difficulty. Here's two denials, and they're both aimed at some of the erroneous teaching that pervades the church. The first sentence seeks to counter the claim of some of the early Pentecostal groups who said that you had to speak in tongues as proof that you are genuinely a Christian, that unless there's the miraculous verification, then, then you're not genuinely a Christian. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, he is asking questions to this church full of believers. He says, do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? And the answer in context, you can read it, is no. No, not everyone who is a follower of Jesus speaks in tongues. So the Spirit does not need miraculous verification. And the second sentence that's in this passage, in our doctrinal statement, deals with, I think, what is a greater danger, actually, It addresses the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel. 
The prosperity gospel is the fastest growing form of Christianity in the world. And I hate to hesitate to use the word Christianity. It is running rampantly through Africa and Latin America. It's like a virus. It's an abominable lie. And it is so patently the fault. Uh, the, the claim is that God's will for every Christian is that you be healthy and wealthy. And if you are not, it is a sign that you don't have enough faith. It's so patently false, five minutes of reading the Bible will enable you to refute it. The prosperity gospel comes from a combination of reading old covenant promises to the nation of Israel and new promises about the kingdom that is to come and twisting them and forming them together and applying them to believers today. But look what Jesus said. He promised us this in John 16. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. What did Jesus say? He said, in this world, you will have trouble. The Spirit does not guarantee a life of prosperity or a trouble-free life. Jesus, in fact, told us we would have trouble. This is what the Spirit doesn't do. What does he do, though? I think he enables us, the Spirit enables us to sing in the dark. Ten years ago, Carl Truman wrote an article called, What Do Miserable Christians Sing? Good article. He was surprised at the response that he got to it. He, uh, I want to read a paragraph uh, from, he wrote this later in response to that first article, thinking about it. Listen to what he said. The article that I wrote 10 years ago, he says now, was intended to highlight what I saw as a major deficiency in Christian worship, a deficiency that is evident in both traditional and contemporary approaches. The absence of the language of lament The Psalms, the Bible's own hymn book, contains many notes of lamentation reflecting the nature of the believer's life in a fallen world. And yet these cries of pain on the whole are absent from hymns and praise songs. The question that formed the article's title was thus a genuine one. What is it in the hymnody of your church that can be sung honestly by the woman who has just lost her baby, the husband who has just lost his wife, the child who has just lost a parent, when they come to church on Sunday. Weakness and then death ultimately come to us all, and it is the pastor's task to prepare both himself and his people for the inevitable. Thus, I now believe it is more important than ever that the church embraces weakness and tragedy in its worship. True, we look forward to the resurrection, but we often forget that the pathway to resurrection is necessarily and unavoidably through death. We need to remind people both in what we preach, what we pray, and what we sing as a congregation that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness and where resurrection is concerned in and through our total weakness at the hands of death. So sing with joy, afflicted one. The battle's fierce, but the victory's won. God shall supply all that you need. Right? What a miserable Christian sing. When Jesus told, us, uh, told his disciples about the Holy Spirit, he said to them, Whoops, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you, and he will be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Listen, I will not leave you as orphans. The Holy Spirit, what does he do? He provides a home, he provides a family. I won't leave you as orphans. The Spirit will come. He'll be a source of encouragement and care. The Spirit doesn't eliminate pain. 
but he's the one who for Christ's sake and in his stead helps us to endure pain. We sing songs of lament, as many good ones as we can find. They're nearly impossible to find. Um, We sing them as an expression of our dependence on the Holy Spirit. Now, finally here, number four, the Spirit transforms you to make your singing more fruitful. The Spirit transforms you to make your singing more fruitful. The Spirit gifts us. He transforms us. These are words from the doctrinal statement. He, he gifts us. He makes us more like Christ himself. And that transformation gives, gives meat or gives substance to the singing that we do together. Listen to what Jonathan Lehman wrote about. He's writing about standing on the platform at his church and watching the people sing as a, as a pastor. He says, picture this, we're singing the 16th century words of a mighty fortress and I notice a woman who was recently assaulted now sing with all her might of a bulwark never failing. We're singing the 18th century words of come thou found of every blessing and I'm heartened by the older saint who has persevered in the faith for decades still singing prone to wander Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love. We're singing the 19th century words of it as well that I look out and see the middle-aged brother struggling with discouragement over his fight against sinful anger, now raising his voice to shout, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole. We're singing the 21st century words of in Christ alone, and I see the talented young mother who is tempted to regret what she's given up to have children, now exalt in her new ambition. In Christ alone my hope is found. He's my light, my strength, my song. As I sit and look out and behold, my own praises to God are strengthened by the stories and songs of others. My faith is invigorated and enlarged by his work in them. Brothers and sisters, the progress you have made by the Spirit in your patience, the progress that you have made in your grief and your sorrow and your loneliness, the progress that the Spirit has made in your life to make you more like the Lord Jesus in the midst of those, when you come and sing, it makes your singing fruitful in this congregation. We see one another suffering and hurting and singing even so Even so, praise to the Lord. It encourages us. It helps us all. It it feeds us. Someday you should uh, read through the book of Revelation and notice how many songs are there. It's a lot of songs. It's in fact, it's as if John is telling us when he writes Revelation that our singing today is just warm up for that great singing that will take place in that day. Graham Kendrick made an observation about the singing in Revelation. He said this, Interestingly, of all the songs in the book of Revelation, not one is a solo. The 24 elders sing and cast their crowns before his feet. The united voices of countless angels resound. Every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and all that is in them are joined in one song. Those who are victorious over the beast are given harps and a song to sing. In every case, multitude of people, multitudes of people or angels unite in the same song with absolute unity. No solos in the book of Revelation. We sing with one another. We sing to one another. It's one of the evidences of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. He works in us so we can sing, and then he works through our singing to make us all more like the Son. That's what we believe. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and how we are thankful to you For the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus told us repeatedly that the Holy Spirit is a great gift that he has sent, that you have sent to us. 
Lord, uh, it is distressing that the work of the Spirit has been a source of greater contention than it has greater joy. And yet, as we come before you this morning, I do pray that you would make us a Holy Spirit singing congregation. Filled with life, because that's what the Spirit does. Glorifying Jesus with great joy, because that is to his pleasure. Singing in our sorrow, transformed by his work, so that we can see the testimonies in the faces and hear them in the voices of one another. Oh, Lord, the Spirit, he is a great gift. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not leave us as orphans, but you sent your Spirit who uses your word to make us like you. Do that work. Magnify it in our congregation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.